Well, we are in um, we're in Matthew chapter eighteen. We finished a really, really enjoyable study of um, some of the events around the Protestant Reformation. And um, if you joined us for the past six, seven weeks, uh, we had some videos. Uh, talking through some of the history of, of Protestantism and uh, the development of the historical church and and how some of the beliefs, broadly speaking and specifically speaking, that we as Lakeview uh, have come to hold near and dear. Uh, they're not just historical developments, of course. They're biblical developments, but we saw how the, the interplay of history and biblical theology uh, kind of intersected through the Protestant Reformation. We did that. For six, seven weeks, uh, Pastor Evan and myself um, led a couple discussion points after that. So we're going to go back. I don't know if you remember this far back, but we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, and Pastor Peter has been wonderfully leading us through a study of the Gospel of Matthew. And we're back in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20 this morning. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. 20. And it might be helpful if, if I give you just a, a very quick, a very quick synthesis, just a, a catch up on kind of where we are. Uh, so at this point, this entire chapter is one unit. Um, it's one uh, um, message, one speech, one sermon, one teaching that Jesus presents. Uh, we're likely in the city of Capernaum. This particular uh, section of the ministry of Jesus, Jesus has already just kind of dropped the, the the bombshell. You know, I'm going to be crucified and die. So his teaching begins to be more specific and heightened in in, in uh, how he wants to instruct his disciples. And uh, in this very uh, chapter, we're probably really likely in Peter's home. We're, we're in the home of one of the um, the apostles. And if you look at verse two of Matthew chapter 18. I want to leave you with this um, image. Verse 2 of chapter 18 says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. So, very likely, um, Jesus takes this little kid and sits him on his lap and the entire teaching that follows in Matthew chapter 18 is, is taught through that lens of this little child, of, 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 of the, this little kid right there in the midst of them. Uh, and this is important for um, a, a, a number of reasons. He's going to talk about the childlikeness of the, belie- of, the, of the believer. So the child is an illustration of childlikeness. And he begins a presentation by saying that, you know, we have to be like this kid to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, he continues and uh, talks about uh, we need to be humble and dependent without accomplishment and achievement earlier in, in that chapter. Um, you know, the disciples are like, hey, you know, who, who, who's kind of the greatest among them all? So Jesus is going to use the illustration of, of this child, of the humility of a child, of the purity of the child, of the value of a child as kind of the, the, the groundwork of the rest of this teaching. So I, I, want, I want to emphasize that, that there's something very purposeful in Jesus in bringing this child and then having this teaching on on, on on the confession of sin, on confronting one another, confronting believers in their sin while the child is there, 
and on the discipline that is exercised in a church setting among believers with that child there. He's, he's, he's making all these teachings as it relates to this little kid there. So a really beautiful thing. Uh, other themes in this passage before verse 15, uh, we need to be protected as children. We need to be respected as children. We need to be pursued as children. The passage immediately before this is that parable of that shepherd that has a hundred sheep and, and one of them is lost. And uh, he leaves the 99 to go find that last one. And, and again, that child is right there. So everyone would have made that connection between, okay, that one last child is valuable because, because in the same way that this kid is valuable, people would have, as he's teaching, been drawn to this physical kid um, right there before Jesus. So um, what I like about this text is, um, is uh, well, it's actually really discouraging, uh, incredibly discouraging that, you know what's not said about this text? That this kid was unruly, that this kid was screaming, uh, you know, so that my, I wish my kids looked like that. One of the pastors grabbed them and wanted to teach him a lesson, and there's no insinuation there that this kid was anything like mine, and that's very discouraging. Um, but anyways, so we're in uh, Matthew 18, verse 15. Let me read this together, and then um, continue. So it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I emphasize the presence of the kid while this teaching is happening because what Jesus is going to teach us, what Jesus has taught us in this passage, is actually supposed to be incredibly simple to understand. There's nothing complicated about what we just read. It should be wildly simple. Uh, My good friend back there, Bob Officer, Bob spent his career working for NASA you know what he did? He played with lasers. Okay? That sounds really complicated. Okay? This teaching is not complicated. It's not hard to understand. It is, however, very, very hard to do. So let's pray. Ask the Lord for guidance, and we will dig right in. Father, we ask that your Spirit who resides in us would lead us to truth as we read and study the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So let's go back to verse 15 and um, unpack some of this and see if I've lost anyone so far. So verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Let me stop right there. Did I lose anyone? Okay. 
And the Bible can be complicated. You read the book of Revelation, it's, it's pretty hard. You read Ezekiel, man, there's some hard stuff there. Some of the prophets, some really hard stuff there. Have I lost anyone so far? Okay, it's, it's pretty, pretty, pretty simple. But let's unpack what is really being said there. So if your brother... What does that mean? Well, implied there obviously is your sister. He's not, he's not just speaking about, about a, 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 a male brother, just the, 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 the gender aspect of it. Um, uh, if, if your brother sins, uh, um, the word brother is used in several ways in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, one of the ways that the word brother is used uh, is used to, to talk about um, spiritual connection, a bond. Uh, in Jewish thought, um, this is very much akin to the concept of a neighbor. So when Jesus taught them, love your neighbor as yourself, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't just saying, you know, love the guy who lives next door to you. The question is asked, well, who is your neighbor? You know, so it's, it's this spiritual connection. Connection that you have uh, with someone. So in Matthew chapter 5, for example, uh, early on in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, if you're angry with your brother, you are liable to judgment. Right? The, the, the teaching there means that if you're angry with someone that you share this close connection with, the spiritual bond, this deeper type of one-on-one uh, connection with, um, that's one uh, use of the word brother. The second use of the word brother that's typical in the New Testament, particularly in Matthew, is just the, the biological relationship, your actual physical brother. Uh, so having the same parents. We see this teaching uh, when uh, Jesus is confronted by some Pharisees about uh, his teachings on divorce. And they present this really ridiculous hypothetical situation. And they say, Jesus, you know, suppose this one guy, you know, is married and he dies. And then his wife winds up getting married to his brother, physical brother, and then he dies. And then the third brother takes him, and then he dies, and then the fourth brother takes him. You know, when they get to heaven, who is he married? So the, the actual physical connection. So spiritual connection, physical connection, blood relationship. But here, in this text, and this is this is really important for us to understand, the word is used in a much narrower sense. It's definitely speaking of a spiritual bond. Much like Jewish people would have spoken in that sense. You remember, Matthew is written with a Jewish audience in mind. And it could certainly include the blood relations, having the same parents. But look at verse 17. This is why I believe Scripture is saying that, that, that in this particular sense, the word brother implies a much more entrenched relationship. Verse 17 says, if he, who is he, your brother, refuses to listen to them, who is them, the two or three people that you brought, tell it to the church. It would make very little sense for that verse to mean, for, for, for that verse to have the context of the word brother be a general relationship with someone else. So a complete stranger that sinned against you at Rouse's this afternoon while you're trying to get stuff for the Saints game, uh, and he sinned against you, and you brought that bro- that quote, brother to the church. It would make very little sense for Jesus to be teaching that that is the, 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 the how you go about uh, trying to seek reconciliation with someone. This passage is more than a general principle of how to be a good person, of how to be a friendly person, of, of how to be a forgiving person. Those are all good things, but it, it's more than that. It's teaching more than just peacemaking principles. 
you know, uh, uh, how to be a good neighbor type thing, how to, how to be a good citizen, how to be looked upon by society, by those you work around, by, by even family members, someone who loves peace, who is kind, who is gentle-hearted. Those are all good principles. But in this passage, Jesus is teaching some of the most basic and necessary practices that a church needs to do, that a church needs to to do. Implied in that is that this brother relationship is speaking to that bond among believers in a church. Again, they're not hard to understand, but they can be difficult to do. So in other words, Jesus, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, I believe that this text is is very generally sharing the principles of peacemaking, but very specifically applying this to people within a local body. So this is, for example, in our application, if a member of LCC sins against you, a member of LCC, then you do what the passage prescribes. So the text says, if a brother sins against you, we've talked about brother, meaning that special connection of church membership, church uh, a bond that, 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 that called out one structure to people who have acknowledged their, their allegiance to a specific body, who, who are partakers of a specific spiritual body in a specific setting. Um, but if your brother sins against you, a, a question that, that you should probably be asking as you read this is, well, what sin? What, what type of sin? To, to what degree of sin? You know, what, what, what's, the, yeah, what, 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 what's the boundary that needs to be crossed for this formula to put in place? Well, it's not specified, is it? It just says if your brother sins against you. And, and I, I think that's the case because the whole point here is not what type of sin has been committed. The, the emphasis is not necessarily, uh, or yeah, the emphasis is not necessarily on the type of sin being committed, but rather that the sin has been committed. So he's not, Jesus is not going to parse out, okay, there's a, there's a category here of sins that if anyone does this to you in a church setting... You can pass those over. They're really not that big of a deal, you know. But let me list this other category of really, really big deal sins. And if you do one of these sins, that's not what this passage is delineating. The passage is delineating the principle of sin has been committed between one person and another person. And these two people share that bond of of church allegiance, church acknowledgement, church membership. They're they're, they're partakers of the fellowship of Christ within one uh, specific setting in a church. Um, So, uh, the text doesn't tell us what sin, and it doesn't tell us to what degree. It does tell us if you have been sinned against. So, the question then that follows up is, what does sin do then? So, what is the effect of sin on a person within the church? Is there a greater effect of sin than just the offense? So, does, does sin, is sin bad because it hurts people? Is sin bad because it, it uh, violates an agreement between two people? Is sin bad because it deprives somebody of something, uh, of, of honor, of worth, of, of, does it does, you know, violate a standard? And the answer to all those questions is obviously yes, right? I mean, when, when you 
um, when you hurt somebody, the, the, the very action of hurting, when you insult somebody, when you revile somebody, you, 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 you've offended their reputation. You've, when, when you're deceitful to somebody, you're, their trust is hurt. When, when, when you steal somebody, you know, you've taken their property. So on the face value, sin is wrong because it causes harm. But is that the only reason why sin is wrong? Is that the only effect that sin produces or has between two people? Let me read you a passage in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. The apostle says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his Son, listen to what it does, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So I ask that question again. What does sin do? Certainly it harms, right? Certainly it offends. Certainly it, it takes and it hurts. But based on 1 John 1, 7, based on the entire understanding of, of God throughout uh, the Old Testament, revealing himself to the people of Israel and, and demanding purity among them because of, of sin in the midst of them, sin stains, sin defiles, sin corrupts. So in, in one sense, sin harms but in a much deeper sense, the harm is just the harm is more than the superficial effect of a sin. If I'm angry at somebody and I punch him in the face, that's sinful, right? And and the act of 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 a fist hitting a face that hurts. But there's a more profound harm. There's a a deeper uh, uh, um, thing that's been done. Spiritually speaking, defilement has taken place. Corruption has taken place. Listen to James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, listen to verse 16 very carefully. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. I'll read that again. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Did you notice that? Did you, did, did, did you hear the statement, the implication that James is making? That there is apparently some type of connection even between sinful activities and being sick. Do we think about sin this way? If I were to ask you to describe sinful people or sinful activity here at Lakeview, if I were to ask you list words, 
But right now, as you're sitting here at School of the Word, if I were to ask you, throw words in your mind. Think of words that describe sinful activity or sinful people in the church. Are you using words like hurtful, rude, impolite, offensive? Or do you use words like desecrating? Corrupting. If you've heard of a brother here sin against a brother, have you thought of that being an act of defilement? More to the point, when you sin, when you sin against somebody in the church, when you purposefully or impurposefully or through falling into temptation, when you have committed an act of sin, Did it occur to you that in addition to hurting them, you are, in a sense, defiling them? If any sin is defiling, we learn this from the Old Testament. We learn this throughout all of the New Testament. And if we are one body, then when we sin, we defile one another, right? And if we are one body, we're not separated individuals. We're one body, in one sense, When we sin, when we defile one another, the church itself, in a sense, is is defiled. Its purity is called into question. And and, and I think that this is at the core of of this entire chapter, specifically of what we're looking at today, 15 through 20. We are being taught here that Jesus desires that his people not just be friendly towards one another— he desires that, that, that the church not just enjoy fellowship with one another. He, he, he desires not just that we treat each other with love and patience and kindness and gentleness and love, all the fruits of the Spirit, but he desires his people to be something. He desires his church, his bride, to be pure. And it's so important, this is so crucial, that something greater than our fellowship is at stake. Something greater and more profound than our fellowship, than us enjoying each other, than us living a life that, that is fulfilling and, and, and uh, 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 proclaiming of the gospel is at stake. The very presence of God in the midst of his people is at stake. Look at verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So we could reword that text to say, where there is God honoring agreement and fellowship... In my name, that's what in my name means. When there is agreement and acknowledgement in the name of God, there I am among them. God wishes that his church, his bride, be presented to him pure. God wishes that us would remain pure, that we would seek purity, that we would be pure. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Now listen very carefully. That he, who's he? Christ, might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, that she might be pure. When we sin against each other in the church setting, we violate God's expectation of purity amongst his people. Now, that's pretty clear from the text, right? But it, it's hard to do. It, it's hard to... If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That's what's at stake here. The purity of God amongst his people. Conceptually, it's pretty easy. Okay, if someone comes and sins against me, I'm going to go tell him, hey, you sinned against me. <laughs> How many of us do that? It's pretty hard for obvious reasons. Well, let's, let, let, let's keep going. So, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So, we have somewhat of a formula, of a process, of an outline of how to do some of this. If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. Go talk to him in private. What does that mean? It means don't talk to other people about it. Which is a tendency, right? Did y'all hear what Tammy May did to me the other day? Or, or the, 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 the more spiritual version of that, the more spiritual version of that, church, can we please, I just, I implore you in the name of Christ, I'm, I'm concerned, I'm deeply concerned uh, to the very core of my being. Can we please lift up Brother Frank Loria in prayer. Um, he has, he's been gossiping about me. So um, can we please lift him up to the Lord? Right? That, that, that's the spiritual way of doing it, right? That's not according to scripture. That, that, that sort of gossip, that, that sort of public declamation of what somebody's been doing wrongly to you, is in itself sin. That's gossip. I mean, that's what it is. So you go in private. And then in verse 15, it says, if he listens to you, well, what does that mean? Well, (laughs) it means that the other person says, you know what? You're right. I I, I, I understand that. I I see my shortcoming now. I I see how I failed to live up to Christ's likeness. I regret it. And I want, to, I want to turn from that. Now, that's the goal. That's what we're looking for. But look at the next part. I love this. It says, you have gained or won your brother. Some translations have won. You have gained or won your brother. What's the implication there? So did you know that inside the very church you can lose people? Inside the very local body, we can lose brothers. You can't gain something that's not lost, right? You can't win something that wasn't lost to you before. 
So there's ways of doing this, by the way. Um, let me just in, in, insert this thought here. Uh, if he listens to you, does not mean let me berate the person to agree with me until they agree with me. And I'm going to develop this idea a little bit. But this word, by the way, won or gained, this word that's used there is, is a commercial word. It's, it's a word taken out of, of the marketplace, of, of earning something, of winning something. And, and it tells us right at the very beginning that the, what the purpose of this confrontation is, what the ultimate goal that you have is not to be made right, is not to get your rightness, your honor restored, your, your, your sense of, you know what, I was sinned against, I'm going to show this person, I'm going to get them to admit that they were wrong. That's not the goal. The goal is to win the brother that was lost. The goal is to regain the brother that was somehow lost. And the truth is that some people have the idea that confronting sin in the church is for the purpose of throwing people out of the church. That the goal is, I'm not going to you know, relate to this heathen. Let's, let's just, you know bang our drum and kick him out. Well, that's, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Don't take my word for it. Read the Savior's expectation of us. The purpose of, 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 of church discipline, the purpose of confronting sin between believers is for purity. Christ desires us to be pure. And, and, and again, this word, won or, or gained, is, 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 it, it happens in, in the context of the marketplace, but, but it refers to accumulating wealth or getting rich. The, 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 when you think of accumulating wealth, how do you go about do that? If, if I were to tell you, okay, think about ways to get wealthy, to, to gain wealth, you're probably thinking of something that's really valuable, right? You're not thinking of wealth as something that, that, that is, is, is annoying or frustrating. Oh, might as well go pick up that check that's worth a million dollars. Oh. And, and, and sometimes that's the attitude we take in the confrontation of sin. The idea here is that a sinning brother is a loss to the fellowship, corporately and your fellowship. But when restored, he becomes a gain. You've gained something. That There's wealth, spiritual wealth, that's been returned to you. It's like, it's like doing your laundry and, and finding, a pair, you know, finding a $20 bill in a pair of jeans that you cleaned. It's like, oh my goodness, wealth has been restored. After you cleaned that which was dirty, you've regained something of worth. But look at verse 16. Notice the escalation here. So, we go to him in private. If he listens to you, you've gained him, right? That's, that, that's everyone's hope. That, that, that is the, 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 the outcome we all want and desire, right? But what if it doesn't? But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to them, tell it to the church. There's an escalation, right? Things got more serious. The the, the plot thickens, okay? So a question I want to ask you and ask you to consider is this. Does, Does that seem excessive? 
Does that seem intrusive? I mean, after all, we're modern people, right? We should keep our nose out of other people's businesses, right? Right? Do we listen to the world and how we are to relate to other people, or do we listen to the Savior and how we are to relate to each other within the local church context? Why spend so much energy trying to pursue a brother who has sinned against you, yet remains unrepentant? Why do that? Why go through all this length of involving two or three more people to to go and pursue this person who has sinned against you, and they're unrepentant? How do I know they're unrepentant? Well, I mean, obviously, if you didn't gain him back, that means he's still lost, which means he's still lost in his sin, right? And then the escalation continues and tell to the church if he refuses to listen even to the church. So, so the, the, the escalation continues. But the question is, why? Why be so concerned about a brother who is stuck in sinful, repetitive patterns? We go to recover him because he has value. He is of worth, Right? But why does he have value? What type of value does this brother have? Is it just a benefit that, okay, now I can have, enjoy more fellowship? Is it about me? Is, is, is the, the, the value determined by how, how, how I'm going to enjoy now that brother coming in? Because that, that sounds pretty selfish, right? So I'm going to go pursue that brother that's lost because when I get him, I'm going to enjoy church more. That, that sounds utilitarian. That, that, that can be looked in that sense. But why does he have value? Or, or what types of value does he have? Specifically, he has value because the Spirit of God dwells in him. Again, we're speaking within the context of a local assembly. Church. Ecclesia. That's the word that's used there. Called out ones. Holy people. This person has value because he is gifted by the Holy Spirit to have ministry in the church to all the rest of us. This person has value because he is an instrument by which God can do his work in the church and through the church to the world. If in fact we are all the body of Christ, and if in fact we are all the members of the body of Christ, this brother be living in unrepentant sin, living in patterns of, of uh, uh, um, uh, routine sins is harming the body as a whole. Some of y'all know this. I get gout on my left toe, and it's a little digit, but boy does it hurt. And I can't walk for weeks, and how can that little toe affect the rest 200 pounds of me? I mean, how, how, how can, well, in the same sense, there's a connection here. Not only is fellowship disturbed among the brethren, but again, I'm going to keep emphasizing this, purity is affected. This is, after all, the illustration Jesus gave in the previous section. I talked about this earlier in Matthew 18, where he says, see that, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Remember, that little child is right there. So Jesus is having this discipline conversation. Jesus is having this confrontation about confronting sin. Well, he probably has that little kid on his lap. So they're all looking at this and going, wow, this is very childlike. Yes, it is. 
So he says, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than of over the 99 that never went astray. So it, is, uh, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. There is value in that one sheep that is lost. Not just to us, but there is value to God. God himself desires for that sheep that is lost, for that, that, that member, for that person who has broken out of fellowship as a result of sin. God wants that sheep to return to the flock. That's the inherent idea of this text. That the sinning person is so valuable. He is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He has literally divine worth. That you go and endeavor to get him back. And if he won't come back... You take two or three and try to get him back. And then if he still won't come back, then tell the whole church to go after him. Because that's how much value he has. It's not about slandering a person. It's not about being rude. It's not about being noisy. It's not about telling people what to do. It's not about being legalistic. It's, it's not about all these other things. It's about pursuing that which cost the blood of Christ. If that person is in fact a, 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 a saint, if that person is in fact a believer, if in fact that person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then guess what price was paid for that person? The infinite price. The very blood of Jesus was paid on his behalf. So he is covered in infinite worth because Christ died for this person. So do we look at people that way when they sin against us? Do we say, oh my this one that's been redeemed by the blood of Christ is out of fellowship. Let's go confront him in sin so that we might restore fellowship with him. Why? Because he has value. He has spiritual value. Christ has died for him. The body needs him, but Christ has died for him. So, I guess a, a lesson through this is that is if we in the church are not willing to confront someone's sin, and look, there's a whole lot I could say on how to do this and, and uh, ways about doing this and, and certainly shortcomings I have demonstrated over the years in, in how to do this, uh, um, but, but uh, I just don't have time and I could spend all that time in, in, in how to do this and want to do this, but, but if, the lesson we learn here is, is, is or one of the lessons we learn here is if we in the church are not willing to confront someone's sin, then we don't see them as valuable. We don't see them as having value. Christ sees them as having value. As I said before, he paid the infinite price for them, and he gives us the, the responsibility, like any parent, to go after our wandering children. Discipline, you might be surprised to hear this, maybe, but discipline is a regular routine at the Lightano household. Discipline children is a regular routine at the Lightano household. On any given day, my kids are more likely to miss a meal than to miss being disciplined. I mean, they just, they're lovely and energetic and all sorts of stuff. But, but if I were to tell you the reason I discipline my kids 
most of you in this room have children, have had children, are around children. If I were to ask you, what's the reason behind discipline? What's the reason behind confronting my kids with their sin? One of the reasons, an underlying reason, is the fear I have that they will be lost to mom and dad because of their sin. And that they will be lost to the kingdom of God if they grow and mature in their rebellion. If they continue in rebellious ways, that frightens me. So out of love, I discipline them. And that motivates me to confront them in their sin. And so whatever discipline is necessary to make them feel the pain of their own sinfulness, whatever I have to do to instruct them in how serious this matter is, whatever it, whatever it takes, we do. And every time they drift into sin, they are disciplined for the purpose of restoration. Because, to me, my kids are priceless. My kids are of eternal worth. I feel that way about my kids. You feel that way about your children. And that's exactly how the Lord is telling us to feel about his children. Can you now see the little kid sitting on Jesus' lap? Can you now see Jesus sharing verses 15 through 20 and maybe even looking at the little child? And and instructing his believers, this is how I see you guys. Apostles, you see this child? This is how I see you. I see you like a child, pure, of, of eternal worth. You are my children. I love you. Therefore, the purpose of discipline is to restore. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. So we're following the pattern of God, which is the pattern of restoration. He goes after his sinning children to bring them back, and he uses us in the church as a means to do that. We're literally doing God's work as we pursue people. So that's why the next principle in verse 16 is given. This, is, this isn't one sense a relentless process. It's a, it's a process that escalates in seriousness. If, if, the, if the sinner who continues in his sin, if, if the church member, if the person who, who, you, who you call a spiritual brother continues in sin, if he had no value then you didn't have, it, it, there would be no sense to do all this. Oh, whatever, just whatever. But that's not what we're instructed to do. It says, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. We're taken back to some of the Old Testament practices in the book of Deuteronomy where God established the pattern that accusations needed to be proven and attested by two or three witnesses. In other words, verification of any fact called for two or three confirming uh, witnesses. This protects both parties, by the way. This is a good filter for anyone who would be really zealous about confronting people in their sin. Because you could be confronting something that's actually not sin. You could be confronting something that you think is sin, but really wasn't. 
So it's really helpful to go to one of your pastors, go to one of the elders, go, 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 go to someone with reputable spiritual maturity. Galatians 1, brothers, if anyone is condemned, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. To pursue one of those people and say, listen, brother, so-and-so, we had this interaction, and he did this, and I feel like I'm sinned against. What do you think? You know, I, I'm not sure that I would qualify that sin, or, or uh, perhaps it was just a misunderstanding. Oh, okay. That's one of the purposes on that end. But the other purpose on the other end is, is, again, to heighten the sense of worth. It's not to get more people on your side to go bash the person, right? It, it's, not, it's not so you have witnesses now. I've, I've got, see, I've got witnesses here. Because after all, witnesses can be manipulated, right? The testimony of a witness can be manipulated, right? Just ask Jesus. Ask Jesus. How the witnesses that testified under, quote, oath back in those days when his trial accused him of saying things he didn't do. And they were witnesses, right? So it's not about, you know, crossing your, your, your T's and dotting your I's. It's about showing that person their worth by bringing other people to help restore this one to fellowship. So if the person doesn't respond to you, you get a couple of friends and you go back and confront them again and make sure that all the data is correct and that you call the person back to repentance and restoration. You do it collectively with the hope that he will listen or she will listen and you will gain your brother, gain your sister. That's the point. Well, what if they don't listen then? Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Yikes. You kidding, Pastor Ronald? No, I'm not. Tell it to the church. Well, how does that work? Well, apparently you tell the whole church such and such person is following a pattern of sin. It's going to get really messy. I've gone to him, pastors. I've gone to him, elders. I went to him with two or three people. They still didn't listen, won't repent, won't hear. Now we're going to shun him. Uh, no, that's, that's not what's being called. Now, is that hard to understand? Be be, be very honest with me. Is that hard to understand? Is that hard to follow? If someone sins against you, you pursue them to try and win them. If that doesn't work, you bring two or three people. If that doesn't work, you escalate matters and you bring it to the church. Is any of that hard to understand? It's not rocket science, right? But is it hard to do? It's very hard to do. It makes us queasy, right? We're Americans after all. And we find out the NSA has all these servers somewhere in, you know, I don't know, these fields over in, I don't know where, collecting all this Gmail data on people. We're like, oh, our privacy is being offended. How dare you, government? How dare you, church people, offend my privacy? My business is my business. Well, no, it's not. It's God's business. Your, your spiritual life as a believer in this body is so important that God would want to go to the lengths of alert the entire congregation and say, that brother is in sin. That brother needs to be restored. That brother is in danger. Pursue that brother. Help him. We're not waving the fist at that brother. We're trying to grab him so that he would come back. That's the idea here. But the question is, Why? This seems like an awful lot of trouble to go through for somebody who clearly is either impetent or or, or childish or immature or just 
he just will not give in. I mean, have, have y'all met someone like that who just refuses to acknowledge that, you know, I am not wearing a blue sports coat? I mean, Ronald, you're, you're, it's not blue. The official color is Caspian blue. That's what it said on that little thing there. Ronald, it's blue. No, it's not blue. It's Caspian blue. And then you bring two people. Can you tell them it's not blue? Have you ever met someone like that? Yeah, I know. I see a lot of nodding heads. Why go through all that trouble? If the purity among the people of God is not a big deal to you, then you won't understand why it is worth all that trouble. But if you understand that God desires his church to be pure, to be holy, then it makes sense. The church is the collection of people who are saved, who are redeemed, who have been purified, and who God expects to be holy. First Peter 1, 15-16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. First Peter 1, 15-16 And that's a reference from the Old Testament. You shall be holy, for I am holy. God tells the Israelites in Exodus, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God expects us to be no different. Get this. God expects us to be no different than he is. I am holy, you are holy. Wait, what? Verse 417, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There's a whole lot more I just don't have time to cover. But what does that mean? Um, In a sense, the church has to protect its holiness. Um, We would basically disfellowship from that person. Now, there's a whole lot of things I haven't said. There's a whole lot of things I could have said. I should still probably need to say. I just don't have the time. But has any of this been hard to understand? So what practical lessons have you learned through this? How are you meant to now look at a brother or sister who has sinned against you? Is your primary concern that they, that they get what's coming to them? Or that they give you something they took? Or is your primary concern the pursuit of the holiness of the church? Is your primary concern to love them... Because they have value. Do you look like Jesus on the cross when he looked up to heaven and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you give people that benefit of the doubt? Do you look like Stephen in the book of Acts, the first martyr, who as he's being stoned, looks up to heaven and guess what he says? The same thing Jesus said. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you look like that when you confront a person in their sin? Or do you look like a Pharisee? You've broken this in. Accursed be you. So it's a strong, strong message. But it's also a simple one. That God expects, Jesus is teaching that not only to enter his kingdom, we are to be childlike. Our faith is to be childlike. What are children like? They're pure, right? They're trusting, right? When you discipline kids, typically, younger kids, most of them, they tend to get over it pretty quickly. It is we grown-ups who hold these grudges for years. Correct? 
they might throw a tantrum right then and there, but then they wake up the next day and it's, it's what other mess can I get into? Right, parents? Amen? Yeah. So there's a sense in that Jesus is expecting us not to be childish, but to be childlike in our faith, in our purity, and in our dependence on him. Um, Let me just say that I didn't even get to verse 18, which is a really, really interesting passage. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let me just very quickly say a couple of words about that. The bottom line principle is that when we deal with sin and confront sin and call people to repentance and hold them responsible and accountable and rejoice with them in their repentance, we, uh, in fact, are doing on earth what is being done in heaven. When we pray, Father, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven, the Lord's Prayer, here's a way that that's implemented. Heaven has already rendered the verdict that someone's bound in their sin. So if someone is impenitent in their sin, they continue in sin, and we say we've tried everything we possibly can to restore that person to, 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 to repentance, and they will not, well, brother, you, you, we, you are bound in your sin. We're agreeing with heaven. When we snatch that person back, we bring that person back to fellowship, we're also agreeing with heaven. They have been loosed from their sin. This is a Jewish idiom, Jewish principle there. I encourage you, I think Andy covered some of this back when he taught on Matthew 16. This phrase is said um, a couple of times in the, the New Testament. But at its core, in the context that this passage has taken place, that's basically what that is saying. You are agreeing with heaven's uh, uh, warrant on a person. If a person refuses to repent from their sin and you say, well, I can't fellowship with you because you are enslaved to your sin, that's what heaven's saying. Yeah, they're they're bound. But if they welcome as as, as, as a result of you pursuing them, you loosen, in a way, their sin, that's what heaven had rendered as a verdict as well. Let me pray for us and then... Let's go downstairs and sing after a wonderful sermon that Eric preached last week and sing boldly and sing passionately and enjoy each other's company in worship. Father, thank you for your word, how truly simple and clear it is, O Lord, but how difficult it is for us. Help us, Father. Help us be childlike in our faith. Help us pursue purity of faith. Help us love each other, O Lord, that we don't trample over people, O Lord, but that we come to them pleading them, O Lord, to be restored to to love and fellowship. Guide us now, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen.